You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P, Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madame Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbo, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I think it's a universal human experience to say something and then, later on, probably while lying down trying to sleep, to think about what you said and realize, man, that was really stupid. And I'm not talking about the big stuff here accidentally revealing a secret that someone told you in confidence, well, that's, you know, bad. Asking a woman how far along her pregnancy is when she's not pregnant, pretty bad. I'm talking about the little slip-ups, conversational faux pas, getting someone's name wrong who you don't know very well, that kind of thing. It's something that I occasionally do here on the show. You know, generally, a typical episode will be about... I don't know, 70% scripted and 30% me just kind of riffing. I write out most of what I really want to talk about so that the narrative keeps going and maintains cohesion, but I like to leave room for me to just talk. Sometimes, often even, it's an idea that I'll have had while in the booth doing the recording that I kind of want to expand upon. But sometimes these provide excellent examples of why it's best to sometimes write down what you want to say. And I'm not talking about factual mistakes. If I make one of those, I try to correct it. I'm talking about a little slip-up. For example, 
In episode 258, just a few weeks back, I used the term nom de plume, and I used it incorrectly. Now, I wouldn't say that this little mistake has exactly been keeping me up nights, but it has crept into my mind once or twice while trying to sleep. I used nom de plume in reference to the many false names that Henry Every has had, but while a nom de plume does mean a false name, it's not the right phrase for what I wanted to say. The right word would have been aliases, although maybe monikers or cognomen would have worked as well. But I said what I said, and it wasn't a big deal. I thought, you know, you're just being overly critical. Don't worry about it. You're overanalyzing everything like you always do. No one's going to notice something like that. And then, Rob. Rob, whom I can only assume is an English teacher, the kind of English teacher that the kids hope they don't get, well, Rob noticed my little slip of the tongue. And of course, Rob was super nice about everything, and 100% right here. And, you know, I love this kind of feedback. It shows me that you guys are really engaged. So, Rob, thank you. Thanks, everyone who writes me these kind of little notes. I love it. I love all of you. But old Robbie here, well, he pointed out that a more accurate and time-appropriate term would have been nom de guerre. In the French, that's a name of war. It was, since recorded history began, a common, almost universal practice for soldiers to adopt wartime names within their units. I'm sure you've all seen movies where all of the soldiers will have names like Tex or Duke or Red. And you know, if you haven't seen those movies, then you might be more familiar with names like Rex or Fives or Echo. This could be a life-saving habit in a real war, though. During our period in English history, probably roughly, I don't know, half of all of the soldiers in your unit would be named John. The other half would be split up between Williams and Henrys, with a few Edwards thrown in for seasoning. So giving everybody a nom de guerre was important. Now, my issue with having used the phrase nom de plume was that a nom de plume, literally a pin name, was chosen by the recipient. And that might fit with Henry Every's use of Benjamin Bridgman when engaging in illegal acts, but not his other names. But then I get that message from Rob, who, you know, apparently likes to read dictionaries in his spare time. Well, Rob provided a link that had a ton of super helpful information. It was a cool blog called Grammarphobia that I'm definitely going to check out, and you should too. But it had some interesting stuff on nom de plume. Believe it or not, that's actually an English phrase in origin. It was adopted by some English authors in the 19th century as a play on the more traditional and French nom de guerre. So, while Captain Charles Johnson is almost certainly a pin name, that's not a term that the author would have been familiar with. But none of that's really here nor there. It's just a fun aside, nothing to do with our overall narrative. But that makes it kind of perfect for today's episode. We've been pretty focused on Captain Kidd and the other roundsmen for quite some time now. And of course, that's where all the exciting stuff was happening in the 1690s, but I need a break from all that for a little while. 
So today we're going to look at a different story, a story that's happening at almost the exact same time. This is episode 265, A Shadowy Figure. The topic of Scottish independence has been back in the news lately. There seems to be a renewed push for a referendum on Scottish independence from the UK. So I thought now might be an interesting time to look at the beginning of the end of Scottish independence at the turn of the 18th century. First, a very, very brief history of Scotland and their independence. The first glimmers of what would become Scotland began in the first century CE, back when the Romans invaded Britain. I know, I know. The Romans conquered most of Britain, but they gave up on conquering all of Britannia. Remember, they built that wall, and they just sort of left those pagan Pictish people to their own devices. Those Picts were by no means unified, but they did form a sort of an identity in opposition to Rome. But then Rome pulled out of Britain, and there were subsequent waves of invasion and migration from Germanic Anglo-Saxon peoples. Those waves of invasion and migration ensured that the Picts, or you know, the proto-Scots by this point, that they would remain more or less unified in their goal of keeping the outsiders out. But while they did fight the Anglo-Saxons, those Germanic barbarians weren't their real problem. Their real problem were meek Irish Catholic monks. The Gaelic missionaries started sailing over and converted a number of kings in northwest Britain, so all of these proto-Scots had to band against them too. But then, round about seven or 800 CE, waves of Germanic pagan barbarians from the west, the Vikings, began to sail into Britain. At this point, the pagan Pictish people and the Catholic Gaelic people all in Scotland kind of had to just get along with each other to fight these incoming Vikings. And here we see the dawn of what we might recognize as a modern Scottish people. It was about this time that they established a kingdom of Scotland, a kingdom that was intended to defend against Vikings and Anglo-Saxons and later on Norman invaders. And they did so for the next 800 years or so, more or less successfully. But then, there's a story that we should all be familiar with. In 1603, the Scottish royal family, the House of Stuart, ascended the throne of England and unified the crowns. But just the crowns here, the kingdoms stayed separate. They had their own parliaments and what have you. The following 85 years or so were filled with turmoil, the Civil wars, Oliver Cromwell, the Restoration, all of that, but then in 1688, the Glorious Revolution. Now, in the immediate aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, the Scots sort of accepted King William and Queen Mary because, after all, Queen Mary was a member of the House of Stuart. But then in 1695, Mary died, and this Dutch Prince of Orange continued to be their king, so tempers began to rise all around Scotland. In the century to come, Scotland is going to become the hotbed of pro-Stuart Jacobite activity, but most of that is going to expand beyond the confines of our show. Before any of that can get going, though, there was a movement at this point in Scotland to strengthen their nation financially, to secure their independence from England. 
And that sound financial footing in the mid-1690s, that is the subject of today's show. Scotland's economy was in poor shape in the latter third of the 17th century, but as the century reached its end, their problems were compounded by two horsemen, war and famine. The kingdoms of Scotland and France had been close allies for centuries. They called it the Old Alliance that dates back to 1291. On the eve of the Hundred Years' War between England and France, England decided to invade Scotland, so France signed an alliance treaty with Scotland, and that alliance had stood for 400 years by the time of our story. But then the Nine Years' War began. England and Scotland's monarch declared war on France, None of this had been a problem when England was ruled by the mostly pro-French Stuart dynasty, but now it put Scotland in a difficult position. Their primary trading partner in all of Europe, it wasn't England, it was France. But that income was halted as soon as the war began. But then that other horseman struck. Famine. The winter of 1694 to 1695 was the coldest winter that Scotland had experienced in 750 years. The following five winters were just as cold or even colder. They call the famine that resulted the Seven Ill Years. It would be foolish to try and compare what happened in Scotland to what would happen in Ireland in the 1840s, but the death tolls were pretty similar. In both, about a quarter of the population either died or left the country thanks to the famine. So here in the late 1690s, Scotland was in trouble, but their leaders had a plan. The first two steps to their plan were simple. They followed in England's footsteps in establishing a national bank and a massive joint stock company. By 1695, the English East India Company was old, as an idea at least, but the Bank of England was not. It had only been established the prior year, and that's the rough model on which the Scottish Parliament approved the Bank of Scotland. But their purposes were very different. While the Bank of England was funded by a massive haul of Spanish silver and funded William's military endeavors, the Bank of Scotland raised capital for business investment. Their primary purpose was to establish a Scottish monopoly that could compete with the English, French, and Dutch East India companies. Actually, that's kind of backward. The Company of Scotland trading to Africa and the Indies usually just called the Company of Scotland, was established in June 1695. It was just a couple of weeks later in July that the Bank of Scotland was established. Now, the Bank of Scotland was intended to fund a ton of different Scottish businesses, but their golden goose, their main priority, was the Company of Scotland. And what the Bank of Scotland really facilitated, the big thing, was English money. They could raise money from anywhere in the world, ostensibly, but any investor in their new venture was legally naturalized as a Scottish subject. And most of that, certainly not all, but most of it came from England. There were a ton of English investors in the Bank of Scotland and the Company of Scotland, and 
and all of these new dual citizens received a bunch of benefits in Scotland, so even if they were trying to guarantee their independence, it really deepened the ties between the two nations. So that's steps one and two. Step three was raising money, which was no problem. But then step four was kind of a series of question marks. Step five was profit, but the question is how exactly? What was the Company of Scotland going to do? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. There were two main theories on how to move forward here. The first was to trade with Africa and the Indies, the East Indies specifically. That's in the name, so, you know, let's do that. And certainly that would be profitable, at least have the promise of profit, but also very dangerous. See, The Royal Africa Company had an English monopoly on trade in Africa. Slaves, gold, ivory, all of that. The English East India Company held an English monopoly on everything east of the Cape. Spices, silks, tea, later on, that kind of thing. Now, the Company of Scotland was not English. They could legally trade with Africa and the Indies and could not be held to account by any English authority. But let's be real here. England held all the cards. If they so chose, they could do serious damage to the economy of Scotland, to any company infringing on their business interests in Scotland. Now, the faction that supported competing with these two giants of English trade... Well, they also tended to represent those who supported complete independence from England. This strategy was part of their overall strategy in combating English influence in Scotland. The other option on the table in the boardroom at the Company of Scotland was proposed by a Scottish merchant named William Patterson. Patterson was one of the company's largest 
backers and a huge influence on both the board of directors and the shareholders. His plan was... Well, actually, you know, let's back up a bit here. William Patterson liked to read. He enjoyed, apparently, nothing more than adventure stories about dashing men doing dashing things. That's part of the reason he set up a printing press in Scotland that published a ton of books. Partly it was to make money, but Patterson funded his printing enterprise with slave trading in the 1670s. He was already a very wealthy man when he built his printing house. Still, Patterson had a favorite book. It was The Buccaneers of America by Alexandra Olivier Exquimelin. Henry Morgan raiding Panama, fighting the Spanish, bringing glory to his homeland, that all sounded just great to Bill Patterson. Now, I'd like you to think way back to the first episodes we did on the Pacific Adventures. When we were talking about the meeting of the captains, men like John Cook, Jean Rose, Bartholomew Sharp, and John Coxon, who would be the first to lead the expedition. In that discussion, I mentioned a conspiracy theory, that there were certain shadowy, rich, and powerful interests in the courts of Britain that had interests in the Pacific coasts of Panama and South America. I told you that I believed it was at least possible that some of those interests handed John Coxon a big bag of money, money that he would use to go a-pirating on those shores, but that their real goal was not plunder. You know, the pirates could keep that, that's fine, but what those investors wanted was information. That's why, I suggested, the first Pacific adventure had not one, not two, but three literate, relatively well-educated men on board. That was exceedingly rare on a pirate voyage. I also mentioned all of their ties to Jamaica. After his adventure in the Pacific was done, Captain Coxon would earn a pardon from the governor of Jamaica and then a commission. Captain Cook would not receive such friendly... well... He died, so Edward Davis would not receive such friendly treatment upon his return. Bartholomew Sharp would not receive such friendly treatment, and Jean Rose was French, so... But why was Coxon so lauded when he came back? Well, I won't answer that quite yet, but I will make a note here, a completely unrelated note, I'm sure. In the late 1670s, William Patterson, Scottish slave trader, was spending a ton of time in Port Royal. Mostly, that was to, you know, trade slaves. He probably sold slaves to Henry Morgan, who was building up a plantation at the time. And I'm sure he was busy, you know. He didn't have time to meet with some scurrilous privateers and concoct a plan to raid Panama. That would be crazy. But I did suggest way back when that somebody was meeting with scurrilous privateers and concocting a plan to raid Panama. And here I'm just going to quote myself from episode 39, Ne'er Dwells of All the World. I said, Why would a band of cutthroat pirates bring along three soft, lily-livered boys just to write down their very illegal exploits? Why would the pirates let them do something like that at all? What if 
Not only those three chroniclers, but the pirates themselves had been hired to do that job. There I'm talking about William Dampier, Basil Ringrose, and Lyle Wafer, but I went on. I think it highly plausible that there was a very real conspiracy to send pirates into Spanish territory on a reconnaissance mission. They could raid and pillage, sure. That's how privateers had always been paid, but their real mission was to transport three gentlemanly, educated scholars deep into Spanish lands, safely, to allow them to record everything they could about the land and the people they could learn, and then to bring them safely home. Just a fun trip down memory lane there, except for one thing. After the second Pacific adventure was over, when Captain Edward Davis and Lionel Wafer were wallowing in a Jamestown jail cell, William Dampier secured their release, but who is it, do you suppose, that paid their bail? If you guessed William Patterson, you would be right. The same William Patterson, so well known in Port Royal before the Pacific Adventures, and the same Patterson who was about to publish Lionel Wafer's A New Voyage and Description of the Isthmus of America. The same William Patterson who was, although not about to publish, about to support William Dampier. Now, none of this proves anything. It's entirely possible that while Dampier was shopping his book around the British Isles, he made contact with Patterson. That he, as the official record states, convinced Patterson to pay to get Lionel Wafer and Edward Davis out of jail and then to publish Lionel Wafer's book. You know, that all makes sense, simple Occam's razor kind of stuff, but I think it's also possible that, as was alleged in his lifetime, that William Patterson was working with piratical elements to see his own quasi-legal aims furthered. He was strangely willing to trust and invest quite a bit of money in those two pirates, who had, for some reason, been included on a voyage to the South Seas. And even if we do accept the official version of events that William Patterson had no prior dealings with these two men, that he merely met them after the fact, well, these two literary pirates were still going to be a big part of his plans moving forward. And here I'll quote from John McKendrick's excellent history, Darien, A Journey in Search of Empire. McKendrick writes, quote, At the outset, and he's talking about the Company of Scotland here, at the outset there was no inevitability that Panama would be the destination of the Company of Scotland's trading efforts. Lionel Wafer's text persuaded Patterson, and Patterson persuaded the directors of the company. Wafer's text changed the course of the British Empire. Wafer's text was instrumental in creating Great Britain. End quote. William Patterson's big plan, the plan that he would successfully sell the Company of Scotland on, was to build a Scottish colony in the swampy, mosquito-ridden Darien region of Panama, a region so thoroughly chronicled by Dampier and even more by Lionel Wafer. It was an unhealthy 
inhospitable and dangerous region, a region so dangerous and unwelcoming that even today the Pan-American Highway has one small gap, the Darien Gap. So what could go wrong trying to build a colony there? Next time, everything goes wrong. The colony at Darien makes Roanoke look like a peaceful picnic. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows like Infamous America, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.